Welcome to the podcast that will teach you how to successfully invest in and build steady streams of passive income from the highly lucrative niche of mobile home park investing. Veteran real estate investors Kevin Bupp and Charles Dehart from Mobile Home Park Academy will personally share with you the valuable lessons they've learned along their journey as mobile home park investors so that you too can learn how to build massive cash flow and huge profits from this extremely lucrative niche. So without further ado, let's welcome your hosts for today's show, Kevin Bupp and Charles Dehart. Welcome, guys and gals, to the Mobile Home Park Academy's weekly podcast, where we'll provide all the information that you need to know to successfully locate, negotiate, close on, and make huge profits from the lucrative niche of mobile home park investing. I'm your host, Kevin Bupp, and today's show is part of an ongoing series that we started a few weeks back. Now, every two weeks, we're going to be hosting a mobile home park town hall webinar, where I'll be joined by a rotating panel of industry experts to discuss the state of our industry as it relates to not just the corona pandemic, but also the general state of the industry and how you can find success even in these uncertain times. Additionally, every webinar will be unique with new industry experts each and every time. To get signed up, simply use the registration link provided in the show notes. And so I'm super excited to get on to this week's show. But before we do, I have a few quick housekeeping items I want to run through. First and foremost, uh, we are in acquisition mode at Sunrise Capital Investors. In fact, uh, we always are. There's never a point in time when we're not looking for a great opportunity. And the reason that it's important to make a mention of this each and every week is that I want to pay you a big, huge finder's fee for finding us a deal. In fact, what's huge mean to us? Well, how about upwards of $200,000? if you bring the right deal our way. Uh, Simply reach out to us via our website, contact us page at sunrisecapitalinvestors.com and just drop us a message. And this might be a perfect way for you to simply get into the business all while working with a group that has a stellar track record. And uh, one other note that I'd like to mention here is that we're, we're actually creating a dedicated website where you can both download our investment criteria as well as submit any deals that you'd like to discuss with us, okay? And I'm gonna be announcing that website here on the next episode. Moving on here, I want to remind you of the free gift that we offer each and every listener that takes the time to leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes, and we'll give you the exact cold call script that we've used in our very own mobile home park business to essentially build a nearly $100 million portfolio of mobile home parks, okay? We find just about every one of our deals by going direct to owners, and we do that via direct mail and also cold calling efforts. And if you want to take your business to the next level, then you definitely need to be then you need to be introducing cold calling to your prospecting efforts. And so uh, to redeem that free gift, you simply send us an email to gift at mobilehomeparkacademy.com and tell us who you are and what screen name that you use to leave that review, and we'll go ahead and send you that free gift. And so, guys, without further ado, let's go ahead and get on to the show. Hello, fellow investors, and welcome to our Mobile Home Park Town Hall number two. We appreciate the many of you who have joined us before and just want to express our gratitude to all of you who are joining us for the first time. This is your host, Brian Spear, along with my co-host and business partner, Kevin Buck. We also have two new panelists that are going to provide some additional insight on the current state of the industry with, uh, with you guys today. Uh, when we launched the inaugural MHP Town Hall recently, we were confident that we were going to be able to provide some uh, value to a lot of different investors, uh, whether you're uh, passive or active, but we really had no idea the type of outpouring of support we are going to receive uh, by providing some relevant uh, actionable content uh, during this crazy international pandemic. Um, had over a thousand people reach out to us and we couldn't get to every single question that was uh, sent our way. So uh, we want to obviously 
provide you guys with an opportunity to uh, express any additional questions that you might have, and we'll get to as many of them as we possibly can on today's call. Uh, with that, we're going to jump right into it. Uh, we'll start with a brief introduction of all the respective panelists, um, and uh, we'll start uh, first with Enan Winkler of Other Street. Enan, go ahead and grab the mic, bud. Yeah, thank you. Um, first, I want to thank all you guys here for um, having us on the call. Um, we look forward to providing as much insight as we can, and you know we're really excited about this. So thank you, Brian and Kevin and Eric. Um, Other Street Advisors is a boutique firm. Uh, we focus on the mobile home park, RV, and apartment industry. Our focus right now is pretty much Texas Northeast, and our team is currently growing. We're in the process of hiring someone in Colorado focus more in the Colorado and in the Midwest, we'll call it in the West. Um, so we're growing. Um, I think from a standpoint of what makes us different as a firm is that um, it's our processes. We have really great processes with respect to running transactions through uh, with respect to proper books and records, good underwriting, and just strong processes to keep everyone on the same page. And I think that's very valuable in today's environment. Um, we're with everyone through the whole process of buying and selling and, and adding value any which way we can. Um, we have done collectively $2 billion in that range of sales. And I believe that our entrepreneurial spirit uh, outside the box thinking and us managing communities, partnering with operators, selling communities, raising money for, for people um, really makes us different. So we just have a very entrepreneurial firm and uh, we're excited to be here. Yeah, love that. Uh, love that entrepreneurial skew, Enan. Uh, very, very much appreciated. We obviously can relate. Kevin specifically, I don't know how many businesses he started in his life, but it's uh, certainly not just one. Um, let me ask you a follow-up question here, Enan, uh, just to provide some color to the listeners. What, what types of deals do you typically have come through the brokerage, right? Do you typically focus on maybe the, the two to three star all ages stuff? Or are you more focused on the five star age restricted, just in case folks want to reach out and touch base with you on the type of deal flow you usually have come through the pike? Yeah, our average deal size is in the $5 million range. Um, you know, we, we really focus on the, the private clients. Uh, the institutions really don't sell, and when they do sell, they typically do it between themselves. So we're, we're really focused on the private client market. And I would say that, you know, I've done a $100 million deal, done a $30 million deal, and I've done a $725,000 deal. So it really, really ranges. What we focus on is we try to focus on properties that are deliverable and are well underwritten. So for us, it's um, private clients, Midwest, Southeast really focused, growing with respect to that. But $5 million range is really our sweet spot. Great stuff. Great stuff. Thanks for adding some coloring in. Uh, sure. Next, I'll pass the mic on to Eric Hawk. Eric, if you'd be so kind. Yeah. Thank you, Brian and Kevin. I appreciate you all uh, sending the invite my way. Enon as well. We appreciate you being here and all the insight you're going to give to the group. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm with Crown Capital Group. We're a family-owned commercial mortgage banking firm based out of Central Florida, Orlando area. And uh, we've, we've been in the mobile home park space uh, since the early 90s. I've uh, been providing financing to 
Um, but we started out in Florida and uh, have branched out over the last uh, decade, I would say, to providing financing to community owners, RV and manufactured housing um, across the country. Um, you know, I will say I haven't closed a deal in Alaska or Hawaii, but all the other states have pretty much touched. So <laughs> we're out there. Um, it's, it's a unique business to be in. Uh, we love the relationships we build with everyone. I would say that's kind of the, uh, what, what we focus on mainly is building relationships with clients and providing a great service and a significant amount of volume. I mean, we probably do 30, 30 to 40 deals a year. Um, but really try to focus on, um, providing that level of service that uh, kind of uh, distinguishes us from other shops who are just trying to push people in and out and push them onto a processor and say, okay, we'll see you at closing. So duly noted. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Duly noted, Eric. Great stuff, man. Um, Again, similarly, what kind of deals would you say are right down the fairway for you? Um, Is it larger deals, smaller deals? Do you have a certain threshold under which you you won't uh, uh, be able to potentially find a loan for a, a given buyer? You know, we like we like to, as many people do, stay above a million dollars. I would say our sweet spot's probably in the two to five million dollar range. That's what we see a lot of because when you get to the larger loans, it's a lot of institutional guys that um, have direct sources and don't really use bankers or brokers. So um, I would say, you know, we've we've done portfolio loans in excess of a hundred million dollars. We've uh, we've done single asset loans in excess of fifty million dollars. Um, but, uh, you know, I would say the, the average loan size this year has been about eight, eight million dollars, which is a little bigger than usual, but, um, uh, but yeah, we do anything from a million to, you know, excess of a hundred million. Yeah. Awesome. Great stuff. And then I'll pass the mic on to, uh, Kevin Buck, a Buck, a man that needs uh, no introduction, <laughs> but uh, if you can give us a couple of minutes here, bud. Yeah, I appreciate that, Brian. And uh, for, for those that, that don't know me, uh, Kevin Bupp here, may, uh, principal at Sunrise Capital Investors, uh, business partner with, with Brian Spear here. And Brian, thank you for, for moderating the, the panel here today. You gave me a break uh, as I did the first one. So appreciate that. Um, so I've been at the, uh, the real estate game for about 20 years now. Um, kind of showing my age a little bit there, I guess, but uh, I think I'm still holding it together pretty well. But uh, so I've been doing this 20 years, uh, uh, but, but you know, specifically focused on the MHP space for a uh, little over nine years now, so going almost you know a decade, and so uh, seen a lot of changes over the time, and uh, um, it's it's all for the good. So just glad to see that our industry is starting to get a lot more traction over these last couple of years, and it's starting to uh, be recognized alongside some of those you know more um, you know diamond asset classes such as multifamily and you know self storage and office and retail and things of that nature. May not retail anymore, but um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, yeah. So I'm also the host of uh, two two weekly podcasts. One is called Real Estate Investing. For cash flow, it's a commercial real estate investing show. Been doing that for about, uh, gosh, about six and a half years now, so quite some time. And then also the mobile home park investing podcast, where we um, specifically talk about mobile home park investing, which is what we're here to talk about today. So um, that's all I got, Brian. Yep, great stuff. And uh, for those who are unaware, uh, I'm Brian Spear, a fellow principal here at Sunrise Capital Investors. Spoken with several different folks who are on the call, um, as I am in the investor relations side of our business, as well as heading up the regulatory compliance side over here at Sunrise. Um, so let's just dig right into the meat of the uh, topic here. Um, Enan has been uh, nice enough to prepare uh, a little bit of data uh, on behalf of the entire panel today. So we're going to give him the mic. Feel free to share your screen and um, uh, 
walk through the PowerPoint that you crafted to share some of the additional data that's come out over the last couple of months based on what, uh, what you're seeing in the marketplace, Eamon. Sure, thank you. Can you guys see my screen okay? Yep. Okay, so what we did is in March, we reached out to a little over 50 mobile home park owners, um, all different sizes, large, medium, small, and our goal was to really try to get an understanding from them how COVID has affected their business, along with, you know, what they think is going to happen in the future with respect to values and so forth. So I thought this would be very, very good information to share. Um, due to time constraints, I'm going to move to this pretty quickly, but um, you can reach out to me, Kevin, Eric, anyone on this call, and we can get you this information, and we'll also put it on LinkedIn. So... Um, what I'd like to do is start with, so the key areas of focus were, um, and I'm gonna move this over here, were, sorry, were transaction underwriting activity, market impact, rent collections, value forecasts, and a 60 and 90 day action plan. Um, with respect to that, some of the questions that we're gonna answer with this is, are transactions happening? Have new listings slowed? What are buyer and seller's dynamics? Have pricing demands changed? Are buyers adjusting? And is today a buyer and seller's market? Um, so I'll jump in here and, you know, what we found is 42% of the owners, and this is 40 owners total, um, if you'll see here, 42% in some way, shape, or form are considering refinancing at this time. But what I found interesting is that none of these right owners were considering selling. So that was interesting. Um, the next slide here is, you know, the market impact on MHP. So what we're seeing through the survey is, is that certain areas we think are going to be affected more than others. And I'll give you an example. I live in Florida, and right now the Florida environment for unemployment is extremely challenged. Um, you know, I see through my Facebook feeds and talking to friends that they're having a lot of challenges getting unemployment. So in Florida, I think that if this continues over a long period of time, we could see issues with rent collections and payment. Whereas in Ohio, for example, they um they're you know they have a better system, I would say, for unemployment. And in Ohio, I was expecting to see more delinquency, but there was less delinquency simply because they their state seems to be better equipped and better prepared to help out these people. So it's extremely important to recognize as you look in different geographical areas, um, you know, how this will impact the residents over the long term and unemployment and unemployment benefits will be a huge impact. Um, you know, overall the stimulus checks and unemployment compensation has dramatically, you know, helped the residents in these parks continue to pay and hopefully that continues. Now, with that being said, we also asked in these communities um, and these owners, how many have been impacted by someone that has COVID? And about 33% had at least one person that had COVID. So I thought that was important to highlight here. Um, as far as rent collections, March, April, and May, better and worse than anticipated, um, 55 plus communities and how COVID delinquencies and concessions reviewed over the next six months. As I dig into that, um, the majority of the owners own parks that I surveyed in the Southeast and Midwest, which is our focus. With that being said, for 2020 in April, the rent collections, um, did they see an unusual increase in delinquencies? 25% did over 
the prior months or the prior year. So about 25% of the respondents had had some issues with respect to collections, where 75% did not. So to dig in that a little bit further, um, you'll see here, it, out of that percentage, what percent of delinquencies occurred? Was it one to five, five to 10? And you can see here that the majority of that was um, one to 5%. So I thought that was important to highlight here that um, delinquencies weren't huge, but you know, 33% was one to 5% and additional collection issues. 8.3 was five to 10%. And then 8.3 was 10, 10 to 20. And then, you know, here, a lot of people didn't have any issues whatsoever. So we are seeing some issues, but they were a lot lighter than expected. So the main majority of them were one to 5%. Um, one thing that we did notice is that, you know, the people that were struggling, part of the struggle is on smaller operators who own one asset or two assets, they're gonna have more challenging challenges weather the storm than portfolio owners that have the ability to kind of rob Peter to pay Paul or they have a larger portfolio that we think will do better over time. So I think that, you know, based upon what we received is the smaller owners are gonna see more impact with respect to the value of their properties and the hold period of their distress compared to larger owners. So I thought that was important. Um, and again, I'm moving through this kind of quickly, so I'm getting some more meat and potatoes of things. Um, as far as value, value and price forecasting, um, is now the time to jump in for bargains? Um, smaller over leveraged parks with inexperienced operators? Yes. Inexperienced operators, we think again, are gonna have bigger issues. And mom and pop community owners, um, will also have issues simply because they're going to go, hey, we've owned this park for a long time. We're done. We've never experienced having RIC collection issues. So those are the people that we think are going to sell ultimately. Um, as far as our take at Other Street, I think the bargains will really depend on the resident's ability to pay, the possibility of COVID resurging in the fall, the type of community and leverage, um, along with unemployment. So these are going to be factors that are really push people over the edge to sell. As I move on here, I think this is one of the most important slides we have here. Um, this is what the 40 recipients said with respect to values over the next 18 months. So this is extremely interesting. Over the one to six months from April, we see that a small percentage think that values will increase. A larger percentage thinks that values will decrease with a larger percentage thinking the values will stay the same and you know some being unsure. Now six to 12 months, we see a, a larger amount of owners thinking prices will increase, smaller amount decrease, with still a large portion staying the same. And then the interesting thing is in 12 to 18 months, um, you know, we're in a great industry in the mobile home park industry and based upon what's going on in the environment today, um, people are noticing that the collections and the healthiness of the mobile home park environment is very strong. So say 12 to 18 months, we see that most of these investors believe that we'll see an increase in value. So I think that's important to take note of. Um, here's what we're seeing over, over the time period in which people have went through the COVID of what they're doing in their communities. They're really focused on operations. A lot of people have increased automation which is operational efficiency and low physical contact with the residents, increasing communication with residents, investors, and owners. And we've seen a lot of people upgrading their communities during these times, which I thought was very interesting. 
In addition, um, stabilizing rent roll, planning for infills and acquisitions. Um, but again, upgrading the communities was a big one. I was surprised at. Um, so that's the quick, you know, synopsis of the survey I put together. And feel free to reach out to Kevin, Ryan, Eric, or myself. We'd be more than happy to share this. And I will be posting this on LinkedIn. Yeah, very, very much appreciated, Enan. Go ahead, Kev. Yeah, real quick, on, on page nine, can you pull that back up if you would? There was, there was some important information on page nine sure. there that we kind of glossed over that I think is, is going to be really relevant. Um, let's, it was related to delinquencies, uh, you know, uh, and, and proportionally lot rents versus rental units or park-owned homes, lease options with purchase, what have you. And so that chart, I, I feel, is very relevant to the discussion. Sure, sure. So, yeah, I mean, so what we're seeing is, and again, this this is pulling from the 25% here that um, seen an increase in delinquencies in April. So this pulls into this. So again, you know, um, you know, the majority of groups right now are seeing a larger increase in delinquencies and lot rentals. I think yeah. personally, my take on this, and you guys jump in, I think over time, we're going to see the lot rentals decrease and we're going to see the rental units increase. Um, so I, I, that's what I predict is going to happen is there, we're going to see more delinquency in the rental units and the lot rentals because, you know, they own their home, they want to be there and they're always going to do what it takes to keep their home where the renters I think are going to struggle the most. So, I think next month when we do the survey, I think the rental units is going to grow. No, I agree with you. And I'm actually surprised that even in the month of April that, that it's skewed in that direction. I would, I would have assumed that it would have been more delinquencies in park on homes, you know, specifically for the reason that you just mentioned. I mean, you know, the folks that actually own their home, they've got much more to lose than that of a individual that's in a park-owned unit that essentially, you know, they don't own the unit. They're just, you know, renting, you know, renting the space. Sure. Um, and, and so I, I do agree with you. I think that that, I think we're going to see that flip-flop over time. Brian, what are your thoughts there, bud? I, I share the sentiment. I would say two things here. One um, is that we don't know the underlying data set, right? If 39 of the 40 owners have, ex, ex, you know, lot rent only communities, then it, it follows that uh, there would be a substantively higher percentage yeah. of folks conveying that they're behind on lot rents as opposed to rental units. So we don't know what that proportion is. Um, Good point. Such is life. We're doing our best to provide real-time data in real-world portfolios here. We can go gather data from the publicly traded um, REITs, which we have. And, you know, Sun Communities, they're, they're hovering at 98% collections right now. Uh, ELS is at 96% collections right now. That's beautiful. But largely, that's a separate business model to, which, to what the vast majority of folks on this respective call are in, which is, you know, mid-grade, all-age communities in middle America uh, serving the affordable housing market. So this is some of the best data that we've seen in terms of, of, of real world data with same store kind of apples to apples comparison with very reasonable, uh, uh, you know, mid-grade communities. I would point out on this respective chart that um, about 33% of uh, owners have seen what I would consider to be a material impact um, uh, uh, of delinquency. So, you know, on the left side there, we've got 33% that have seen no delinquencies occur, 33% that are one to 5%, but a, a full third are, you know, they've, they've been, they've actually felt the respective impact. Um, and time will tell how that shakes out over the long term. I do share the sentiment that it is very likely that the rental portfolio uh, will likely see uh, more delinquencies than the tenant-owned home stuff over time. But uh, 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 this business is so rock solid. It's so phenomenal. Uh, that uh, I don't believe that 
uh, we're going to see some massive shock uh, that's going to just uh, catastroph catastrophically change the, 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 the de underlying demographics um, and, and the macroeconomics associated with the, with the niche. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just too strong. Uh, we're, we're on a, you know, the freight train has left the station. It's going down the track. We might see a bit of a, a blip here in the short term, but over the medium and long term, um, we're going to be in a, a really strong position. Yeah. So. And, and I think it's really safe to say that, I mean, these last two months, I, I don't feel personally that they're a real barometer of what the, what the real impact uh, is going to play out over the, you know, over these next, you know, six to 12 months. Right. I mean, again, this is just a, we're just at the, the beginning stages of this and I, the momentum is starting to get built, but that momentum is going to flow through with the unemployment, you know, co companies that literally will not reopen. I mean, they're going to be completely out of business and unemployment insurance, depending on what state you're in, will ultimately run out at some point in time. And so, again, I think that, you know, every industry, you know, is going to uh, continue to feel the impacts here and there of this uh, pandemic. Love that. Um, one final uh, aspect of this PowerPoint I'd like to address prior to um, pivoting. Uh, as Enan pointed out, the, the, could you share uh, the slide that talks about the prediction of future values again, yep. where yep. folks uh, uh, you know, believe prices are going to go in the, in the future. And this is really what matters, right? When you're looking to actually transact <laughs> in the marketplace, the buyers and sellers' expectations um, are, are, are creating the market. Uh, uh, and uh, I think that that is truly vital data. Um, and I'll put a little additional spin on this, uh, gauged on kind of what we're seeing in the, in the public markets. So, uh, for those unaware, uh, public markets are typically traded on forward-looking earnings, right? Every time that you're looking at a quarterly call, they're providing forward guidance. What is the future guidance, next quarter guidance, et cetera? And uh, there's so much more liquidity in the marketplace that the pricing uh, uh, is updated nearly instantaneously, given kind of the forward-looking guidance that these publicly traded REITs are, are providing. Um, however, in the private market where we sit, where we transact, Deals are traded off of the historical financials, right? We don't say, what are the forward-looking guidance of, of the financials here? We say, what, what's the T12? Send me the T12 and we'll run our analysis based off the historical uh, uh, income and expenses of a given community. Um, so what that means is it typically takes a little bit of time for what you see in the public markets to shake out in the private markets. So if we look at what the publicly traded REITs have done in the manufactured housing sector, SUI, ELS, the publicly traded guys, they've taken a hit, even the manufactured housing stuff. This is the gold. It is the most recession resistant asset class that is out there. But, but even it has been crushed uh, in the public markets. Um, uh, oftentimes um, uh, during moments of volatility, they, they overshoot. They overshoot on the high side and they overshoot on the, on the downside. But the REITs have taken a hit to the tune of 30% uh, or, or greater. Uh, they've come back somewhat, but uh, that's real, uh, real pricing impact. Um, and what does that say for the private market? If we look at what the public market is telling us, how is that going to impact the private market? It's not going to occur immediately, but given the fact that public REITs do have a certain amount of leverage on them, right? They, let's call it 50% LTV on the, on the public REITs. Um, assuming that there was a 30% hit to the price, the share price, um, and they're at a 50% LTV, that means the market is pricing in a 15% decrease of the actual value of that asset. Um, and by no means is that a perfect barometer, but uh, the forward-looking guidance in the manufactured housing space is saying that we're likely going to have a little bit of a price adjustment here over the next six to 12 months to the tune of, you know, maybe 10, 15%. And um, 
if you look at what Enan's uh, kind of uh, ad hoc uh, data has, has you know, showed here, uh, a lot of sellers are conveying that in the first six months, they do believe that there's going to be a little bit of a de decrease here in the next maybe one to 12 months. Um, there are certainly forces that are on the other side of the spectrum there. Um, interest rates have dropped precipitously. I mean, they're literally near zero. Some they basically went negative for a very short period of time. So lowering borrowing costs drops the cap rate, which might keep the asset values afloat. But um, again, that just providing as much supplemental data as I can to the market. Um, it's likely that we'll see a little bit of a, a shakeout, but um, if the Fed continues to pump a litany of capital into the marketplace uh, and can, can keep the asset values afloat, we might not see this type of volatility in the private sector that the public REITs have seen over the past few months. That's just kind of my thoughts here. The demand for the product has not gone down. Everybody still wants to buy these phenomenal assets. Don't know what's going to happen in six months, but we know in, a, in, in, a, in, in five years and 10 years and 20 years, the mobile home park sector is going to be doing quite well. So yeah. Um, anyway, just some additional thoughts there. Uh, anything to add, Kev? No, I don't, but I, I, th I think you nailed it. Okay. Well, moving away from kind of the, uh, uh, the, the you know, operation side and, and the brokerage side, let's pivot a little bit to the financing side and, and uh, give, Mike, uh, give the mic to, to Eric a little bit. Would love to get some feedback on kind of what you've heard um, uh, from the entire range of lenders. Um, you know, the agency stuff, the CMBS stuff, and then some of your local bank relationships, be they national relationships or regional. But, you know, the biggest aspect from my perspective is the CMBS side. When is that going to come back? I'd love to hear your thoughts on uh, the sorts of conversations you've had uh, inside of your network across that entire spectrum. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And great, great presentation there, Enon, filled with uh, a wealth of good information there. Mm -hmm. um, certainly appreciate you putting the time together um, to get that in front of everyone on the call. Um, so yeah, to switch, switch you over to capital markets. And of course, I've got a landscape guy blowing right outside. So apologize if there's a feedback now on my end. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, let's, um, let's, address your question on the CMBS market first. Um, so so there, are, there are CMBS lenders transacting right now, but it's going to be the guys that buy their own BPs that hold that and they're doing $10 million plus deals. So anything under that, um, you know, I have not seen, I've not talked with anyone in our network that is willing to commit to saying, you know, we've, we know when this is going to open back up. Um, you know, you'll probably, you guys have probably talked to lenders and um, heard, yeah, we'll quote deals, but we don't know when we can execute on these. Um, so that's, that's where the CMBS market is right now on smaller deals is we're quoting, we're quoting stuff, but we don't know when, if we can close these from, from what I'm hearing, it's, you know, kind of probably a Q3, uh, Q3 target that uh, that we'll see that market open back up. Um, I know there was uh, a securitization. I was talking with one of our guys at Union Capital the other day, and um, and he said they they were just part of the securitization that occurred. And I think it was the first of this month. It was the first CMBS securitization that had transacted, um, and that was again them buying their own B piece um, and being able to take on that risk piece. Um, and of course, it's it's all going to be high quality real estate. Um, hospitality's dead now. So, and that was that was a huge piece in the CMBS market was you know your hotel space, 
a lot of retail going through that. Um, so once, you know, once they find a way to start putting the paper together again, um, that they can sell off to other investors, sell that BP piece off. Um, again, it looks like Q3 is probably going to be the target for that, but they'll, they'll still quote your stuff. They just won't close on it yet. <laughs> Eric, Eric, what are the uh, what are the long term impacts of uh, you know again the, you know the, the the large amount of CMBS debt that's tied to retail and hospitality? I think there was some co-star data that suggested somewhere in the range of I think it was 140 or 150 billion dollars of uh, projected defaults over the next two years. I mean, how how does that uh, you know affect the CMBS markets long term? I mean, is there a chance that if these defaults continue to play out, as, which I think they will, I mean, hospitality is just getting just crushed as is retail. Um, does that have a, you know, a long-term effect of whether or not CMS ever comes back or at least in the near future? We talked Q3, but is there a chance, have you heard any kind of uh, uh, potential risk behind it just you know, going away for quite some time? Kind of like it did in, you know, back in 08, right? It disappeared for a period of time. Yeah, yeah. Nobody wants to mention 08 yet. Again, everyone's yeah. pretty optimistic, but it's definitely on the back of everyone's mind. Um, you know, if if you do end up seeing that amount of defaults, you know, it's it's likely in excess of 200 billion dollars. I know the report you read, but yeah. uh, but there's there's just a ton of paper out there that's that they're, they're going to come up for maturities, and there's going to be nobody nobody to be able to refinance that the, you know, you're going to have a ton of hospitality that can't even make their debt service. Um, you know, there's, there's no one staying in hotels, uh, you know, hotels live, live off of, you know, daily, daily, uh, not residents, daily guests. Um, so it's, we're, we're already seeing a big, uh, big upset in the hotel industry. We've got mm -hmm. some very significant players in that space that are already looking for discounts, trying to get people just to, you know, sell on a whim, take out their debt, uh, pay cash and, um, and buy at a significant discount. So I think, you know, I think we're gonna see a lot of defaults, but I, because there's so much liquidity still in the market, I think there's a lot of good buying opportunities in that space in both retail and hospitality for the people that have a load of cash and can get in there and, you know, weather this storm while we have, you know, the people who are going to be on the selling side who have over leveraged, haven't put enough away in reserves and can't weather this. So, so that may be uh, more of a saving grace than what happened in 2008, nine, when there was a, you know, a massive liquidity crisis mm -hmm. and no one had cash to burn. So, I mean, that's going to happen across all, all asset types. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. So, oh. so I don't, I don't want to, you know, go out there and say that, uh, yes, lenders are thinking about that. It's on the back of everyone's mind that it could, it could very well be impacted long-term, but, uh, but everyone's still optimistic, um, in our network and, uh, and they want to get back to lending as quick as possible mm -hmm. in the CNBS market. Great stuff. Um, speaking to the distress side, right, we touched on it basically on the CMBS piece, but there really hasn't been too much distress yet inside of the manufactured housing sector. Uh, but if we do have some of that as we progress, um, what kind of opportunities might come available inside of our little niche as we roll forward? Will they be these, uh, you know, the larger institutional style deals, or will they be kind of the, the smaller one-off um, assets uh, that somebody got in the game a couple of years ago and realized that the mobile home park space wasn't what they originally envisioned. You know, what type of deals do you feel would come back into the pike um, over the next, you know, 12 to 18 months as 
the 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 cloud overhanging the pandemic kind of filters through the industry yeah no great question i you know i i tend to feel that the latter group that you mentioned the the newer investors um, a lot of the syndications that are being uh, put together and groups of investors that are coming together and um, think that the mobile home park space, which it is, it's a wonderful asset class, as you guys know, you guys have been in it long enough, um, pretty much recession proof, but not uh, total economic collapse proof uh, like anything. But, uh, but yeah, I, I'm going to say that we're going to see a lot, of, a lot of these borrowers that have come in and put very little money down, put very little money into reserves, have had to pay out dividends, you know, their, their preferred dividend yields that they're paying eight, 10, 12% pref pieces to their investors. And, um, and they've got, they've got more debts and less, less collections. And it's, it's going to be tough for a lot of these guys that are, you know, on, on Enon slide, the ones that are seeing significant delinquency issues. And, and I, you know, I, I can see some of the bigger players also having issues, but they're, they're going to have the liquidity to keep, keep going and they're going to have the management expertise to weather the storm. Um, Cause they went through it. You know, a lot of the guys that have been around for 15, 20 years, they went through 2007, 2008. Mm-hmm. They, they learned how to manage park owned home inventory. They learned how quickly they need to sell that off or get it rented, get it renovated. Um, and that I, I know, you know, that was an unprecedented amount of inventory that came back into park owners hands, you know, no one had ever seen that before. Um, so they've been through that round. And, you know, again, the stimulus that's been mentioned, um, hopefully that'll keep collections good. Hopefully, you know, the governors keep their mouth shut and don't say you can't be evicted for uh, without paying your rent for a few months, um, because uh, we all know that trickle down effect um, that uh, that happens to the economy when um, ever, no one wants to pay their bills. Fair um, points. Yeah. Fair, yeah. fair points. Um, regarding some of the distress, I would just convey the old adage. Uh, there is no such thing as distressed real estate, only distressed debt. Those individuals who over leveraged over the past few years got out in front, you know, over their skis a little bit, um, may not have done as good of a job as originally projected on the respective pro forma of, of infill, et cetera. Those are the folks that are likely to see uh, the hiccups. And again, I don't think it's going to be some broad swath downturn in, in the manufactured housing sector, but we will have these ad hoc deals that come back uh, from some of those, uh, you know, what I would consider to be maybe poor, poor operators over the last uh, few years. Um, uh, pivoting on here, I'd love to just jump into some of the Q&A that we've had uh, come through the pike. Um, this is more regarding um, ongoing operations. We've got somebody who's got a couple of different mobile home parks that need rent increases. They were slated to have rent increases, but he did not send them out over the past month due to the pandemic. Uh, he's getting, you know, asking to get a little bit of clarity and guidance on suggestion. When would it be okay to actually send out those rent increase notifications? Um, you know, feel free. I would love some, some thoughts here. Um, you know, Enan, you want to grab the ball on this one? Yeah. So, and we, we manage some communities and we're having those conversations with, with owners currently. And I I think that we manage for a good group of owners and from a humanitarian standpoint, you know, we, they all see and have the belief systems that I have and that, you know, you want to, do the best that you can for your residents. But I will tell you that um, 
I think we will see some rent increases because, you know, taxes are going up, water and sewers going up. And if that's not submetered, people are staying at home longer. They're paying more for that. Um, you know, every all costs are going up. So I think what we're going to see is if they were thinking of doing a $20 rent increase, I still think they're going to do a rent increase, but I think they may cut that in half. So they're going to look and go, okay, you know, how healthy is our community? What's their ability to pay? And they'll probably figure out something to pass on, but I think that the amount will change from being $20, for example, they may do $12 or $10, um, and some may not do it at all, but I think it really depends, and I'll go back to the leverage. I mean, you know, the, the, the leverage is the leverage, and if they're over-levered and all their expenses are going up, you know, they're probably going to have to figure out something with respect to a rent increase to make sure that they continue to create a spread here. So, um, you know, we're talking to, you know, tons of owners and people that we manage parks for now, and we're having those conversations. And the consensus as of right now is um, they will do a rent increase more than likely, but it will be less than what they originally wanted to do because they do care about their residents. So that's what I think ultimately is going to happen. And then, Ian, and speaking specifically to those clients of yours that, or, or you know, that, that intend to do a rent increase, you know, the the typical communication, you know, uh, prior to the pandemic, it would just simply be a letter, you know, given the respective state that it's in, it might be a 30, 60, 90 day notice that the rent is going up, you know, X percent or X amount of dollars. Do you guys intend to change the, uh, the, the type of communication that you have with those residents respective to that rent increase going into effect? And if so, what does that new communication look like? Yeah, so, and, and that's a really good question. So I would say that the communication on the properties that we manage has always been strong, but it's it's, it's even stronger now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we care and, and the owners care and we're making that, you know, very, very, you know, we're, we're putting that out there. But um, we have talked about with the rent increase letter, putting a letter together saying that, you know, we care, this is what we were thinking, this is what we're gonna do, and this is why. Um, so yes, I, I think the communication has to be extremely strong. And, and I think that you know, if you're an owner that cares about your residents and you portray that, I think a lot of them will understand. Now, if you hit them with a 40 or $50 rent increase, they're not gonna understand. But if you hit them with a $10 rent increase and you talk about why taxes, water and sewer costs, electric costs, all going up, and you're trying to do the minimum rent increase just to keep up with some of that, and you're being thoughtful, I think that's very important. Because, mm-hmm. you know, the, the message that you display to your residents and how you do things becomes their reality. And that's very important. Um, and, and, and and listen, most of the owners I talk to out there, they care and they're really trying to figure this one out right now. You know, do they increase rents? Do they not increase rents? And, and even the, the ones we don't manage and operate, um, they have said that, yes, they still plan on doing something more than likely. But these are more recent conversations of what needs to happen over the next couple months. Now, in August, that may be a totally different conversation depending on where they are in collections. Because if you're experiencing a 25% collection loss or delinquency, you probably shouldn't increase rents. But as of right now, you know, most people are collecting 95 to 100% of the rents that they were trying to collect before. 
So hitting them with a small rent increase now, um, they will probably end up doing that. That's my thought. Yeah. Fair. Uh, fair. Thank you for the feedback there, Enan. Um, love to pivot on to the next queue uh, uh, here, the next question. Uh, we had a, a question come in regarding infill. Um, you know, given uh, the market uncertainty where we're at today, uh, does it make sense to infill a community with new homes? Uh, assuming the all-in cost of the home and sale, uh, excuse me, the home and the setup equals about 35,000 bucks, they must be bringing in a single wide, and based on the added value to the community achieved by the newfound lot rent, um, uh, is it justifiable? Is it justifiable? Uh, should they take that risk of, of having that outbound outflow of capital uh, uh, for, for the infill project, uh, given kind of the uncertainty of the market to actually increase the respective value uh, of their community? Um, yeah. Thoughts here? Uh, again, I think they, in, in, yeah. Well, here's what's interesting is, and this is, so most people that I've spoken with said that in March and April, they were amazed at how many so homes they sold in their communities. Now, part of that I think had to do with getting their tax payments and them really finding a place to hunker down and saying, I need to find a home. Um, so we've seen that. But I honestly think that, you know, let's just give an example. Let's say you were planning on bringing in 20 homes throughout the remainder of the year. That may need to be pulled down and you may need to test it. So you may need to say, well, instead of 20 homes, let's order seven and see how it goes. Because I think, you know, location, demographics, how the state treats unemployment, I think all of them are going to be big factors in trying to understand, you know, how well an infill will play out during this time. Mm -hmm. So I think you got to test it. If I was planning on ordering 20 homes throughout the year, you know, my thought is I'm, I'm ordering five and I'm going to test it. Now, if those five go well and momentum's good, then I'm going to quickly order five more. But if not, you're not ordering 20 and you're stuck. So I think that, you know, a lot of groups are going to have to test it within their communities and figure out the best route. And then the flip side is be a random do you sell them? You know, what do you do? Do you lease, do lease option purchases? Um, here's something interesting that I'll share with people because a lot of people don't understand this, but in the communities that we operate, what we're seeing is the owners of the communities, and let's use the all-in $35,000 number. Let's say the home costs 25 and there is 10 in setup costs, skirting mm -hmm. steps. A lot of those groups are going, we'll lose 10 grand on the home so we can sell it and get it off our balance sheet or get it away from 21st, we'll lose 10 grand. Because if the lot rents 400 and we lose 10 grand and the value of our community increases by 40 per lot, our net's still 30. So I'm seeing a lot of that. And I think we'll continue to see a lot of that uh, with respect to what happens in the future. So um, yeah, I think they're gonna have to take losses if they wanna sell. Because you know, the reality of the flip side is you know, there are programs out there exist for financing of these homes, but I will tell you that the the ability to get them approved is much more challenging than I thought it was going to be and that they thought it was going to be. So it seems like two out of every 10 get approved for a loan in a community, which then, you know, makes it harder. So I, I think we're going to see a pullback, but I would continue to execute on that plan. Um, I would do it on a smaller scale. And if that scalability is, is selling and it works, then continue to scale um, conservatively. 
I love that. I'd love to chat about a different version of that as well, Ian. And so you just use the example of, uh, you know, brought the home in, they're willing to lose 10 K. So they're all in for 35. Maybe they sell, you know, get off their balance sheet, you know, sell for 25, blow it out the door. They still, you know, come out at you with a a pretty significant net gain, you know, using the $400 a month lot rent. How about, you know, in markets where, you know, there's certain markets where that model works, right? Where there's real $25,000 cash buyers, you know, you'd mentioned it's already on the consumer side of things, you know, to, you know, the chattel financing is a challenge, right? It, it just sure. is, right? There's not a lot of different options out there. Um, there are, but, you know, just not the greatest options. So how about for the communities that bring in, the, the, you know, bring again, using the same example, bring in that new home and then ultimately have to, you know, maybe sell it on a lease to own type arrangement. Uh, so more from a, I want to talk about from the buyer's appetite. So again, you've got a shell value now, right? And so, or you, or you got a value of that remaining contract, what have you. Um, what are buyers' appetites like? You know, maybe not just during the pandemic per se, but just generally speaking, because that, that, that's, that's kind of a new part of our business, right? Like that, that part of the business didn't exist so much uh, 10 years ago. And, and if it did, there wasn't a significant amount of value placed on the homes, right? It, it was a very small uh, component of the business, whereas now it's grown into a much larger um, piece of the industry. Yeah, so it's it's all. I'll give you a couple examples. So, one, a very large community owner here in the southeast, and he owns in the Midwest as well. Um, his take on this: when he buys communities with rent-to-owns or a fill, he is quickly trying to figure out how to get them all to lot rentals. So, for example, let's say that and I'm going to go a little sideways here, just with a longer explanation. But let's say he buys a park and that there's 10 rentals in the park and those rentals, the average value of that's eight grand. I'm making it up. I'll say to them, look, I'll sell you this home for a thousand dollars. And what I'm going to do is your lot rents 350. I'm going to move you to 400 for giving you the discount, but your payment was 650 before. So for a thousand dollars, taking your payment from 650 to 400 and you owning the home has been a huge success for them. Mm-hmm. Because now they don't have any repairs and maintenance on the homes. Um, they own the homes. They take care of them better. So that's been one strategy I've seen work really well. But they are increasing the lot rent, which would increase values. Um, how, does that, how does that same thing play out when it's a newer home? So we brought a newer home in and maybe we're three years into it. Now we want to sell it. You know, we 35 all in. And maybe that home's depreciated over a couple of years. Maybe it's, maybe it's NADA worth maybe 25K today, right? And so you got a pretty expensive home. You can't just give it away at that point. Yeah, so I I see, so there's another philosophy that's similar to that. Another philosophy, and this is through a couple larger owners, what they've been doing is they've been filling the communities as fast as they can from a rental standpoint with a strategy. They're going to rent that home for four to six years, usually five is a sweet spot. And then at the end of five, so let's say the, the payment on that home, $300 lot rent, $400 payment, well, if you take that $400 over a five-year period, and what is that, 22 some thousand dollars, they're looking at that and going, okay, in five years, this home was 35 grand. It'd be worth 22 grand, but I've been paid 22, and would have sell it at 20 to get rid of it, or 18, because we've got all our money back, per se. So I'm seeing that strategy put in place. And then the discount. I mean, I'm seeing people saying, hey, look, we realize we can't make a profit on these homes. Some can, most can't. What is it now? And, and then by taking the hit, so Brian, I think the, the part of your question that's really interesting is a lot of these people doing the fill, 
their goal is to refinance out of this in three to five years. They're trying to increase their value. So that way they're, they're able to refinance, pull the investors money out, pull the loans out that they've set back on. And then going through the refinance, we can pay everyone back. I think if that's your goal and what you're trying to do, you know, I'm of the opinion that you do everything that you can to make sure that these are lot renters um, and that you take a loss on the front end because your value is going to grow substantially over the long term. Mm -hmm. So let me just give you one quick example because we're refinancing a community for one of our owners now. They bought this community for $2.9 million in 2016. They brought in 40 homes, took an average of $10,000 loss per home, but they're in the process of refinancing now and their appraisal just came in at like seven and a half million dollars. Mm -hmm. So that strategy worked extremely well and was extremely effective, even though they took a loss on these homes. It's a $400,000 loss in the homes, but 2.9 to 7.4 with a $400,000 loss on those homes, that's a huge value. Yeah. Yeah, so the juice they, is worth the squeeze there. And yeah, you know, yeah. w once you do the infill and you actually increase the occupancy precipitously, ultimately you're going to garner better fin financing options as well. You know, tossing that over to Eric, at what level, right? Let's assume we buy a deal that won't go agency immediately. It's got 60% occupancy, 55, 60, 65. At what level do we need to get? What's the threshold we need to get that to in the first couple of years uh, to actually get it over to, to the, the to Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac agency debt uh, and pull out a, a really nice piece of, of long-term fixed debt um, uh, uh, to hold, uh, you know, in perpetuity there? Yeah, no, great question. So, so we're seeing the agencies, you know, executing on, you know, if it's, if it's a high quality community that has newer inventory, I mean, I've, I've gotten deals through at 75%, but a good rule of thumb is to be at 80% or higher. That's, that's typically the good rule of thumb with, you know, no more than 20% of that occupancy being on, you know, renters or lease option purchases. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, not to say we haven't gotten communities through with 40, 50%. Uh, you know, on LPOs, LTOs, um, as long as as long as the owner um, and the operator has a kind of a track record of getting those homes converted and has you know has gone through this process before, um, that's typically a great selling point to to get the agencies comfortable with that. Um, and and it's they're they're hungry. It's considered mission business still, uh, manufactured housing. So so the agencies are really hungry for that business right now. Um, as of a month ago, they weren't doing waivers. Uh, today, I was on the phone and we're getting waivers again. So. <laughs> that was what I was going to ask. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering yeah, what that you know what that percentage is on the renter side, right? With with a waiver yeah. there, is it going to be forty? Is it going to be thirty? What 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 might that limit be? But it's good to hear that some of that's coming back. Um, yeah. You know, the, the, the product, I'm not going to say it's bulletproof. It, it, it's not recession proof. I don't think there's such a thing as recession proof uh, uh, investing, but recession resistant, certainly. Um, and, you know, manufactured housing, self-storage have historically outperformed uh, during recessionary periods of time, the debt piece specifically. So uh, love every bit of that. It's good to hear that that's coming back. That's a, that's yeah. a great update. Um, a couple questions here. Um, we've just got a little bit of time left. We'd like to get a, to a couple more. Uh, we had one come through regarding uh, COVID. And to Enan's point earlier in that respective presentation, there have been a lot of different operators that have already been impacted by the COVID uh, uh, pandemic, meaning they have had an actual tenant inside of one of their communities. 
get, uh, get sick. Um, and the question is, uh, I own a small park, uh, tenant just got infected. What do I do? What do I do? Um, uh, we, we, you know, have a pretty reasonable footprint as well. We own stuff from Florida to New York to Michigan to Oklahoma and a lot of states in between. We've already experienced this as well. Um, and ultimately what we did is uh, immediately sent out a notification to um, all of the respective residents. Um, let me share my screen here and uh, share what we, what we put out for everybody for the benefit of the listeners. One second, guys. One second. My apologies here. You, while you're doing that, you want me to touch on some of the things that we've run into with respect to that, just real quick? Um, one, you, you, okay, good. Yeah, we're good. So basically, just put out this little notice here conveying that um, we want to inform them. Number one, inform them of, of what occurred, right? Um, it should also be noted that when you're conveying this, you, you, you cannot disclose the name of the respective resident. Please do not do that. Withhold that information. It goes against a lot of different regulations. Please just share the information with the residents that someone inside of the community has indeed been infected um, and then remind them of all the different respective protocols that they, that they uh, should be taking on a day-to-day -day basis to try to alleviate the spread of this within the, your community. Um, uh, in tandem with this, we updated some of the protocols. Um, Residents could only reach the on-site manager by appointment only. Um, and uh, as far as the repair and maintenance inside of the community, we really pushed pause on anything that was not deemed as absolutely essential, an emergency maintenance item, um, uh, so that we weren't you know, having too many folks interact uh, in, in an unnecessary manner. Um, we, we halted CapEx, we pushed pause on all the di different common areas. Folks couldn't get into the common areas, meaning um, pools were shut down, playgrounds were shut down, shuffleboard, all those respective common area maintenance items. Um, uh, we, we do allow the residents to just go outside into the common area green space. You know, if, if dad wants to go out with his son and, you know, have a game of catch, that's not hurting anybody, but no congregating, um, no of the, you know, oftentimes in the communities, the kids will be playing soccer, football, basketball, pickup games, things like that. Uh, we're not allowing that inside of the communities. Um, but that would be just our suggestion on how to go about um, uh, handling this inevitability. Um, if you have a substantive enough portfolio, this, this disease doesn't seem to be going away immediately. It's going to take a while for the vaccine to shake out. At some point, you're very likely to go ahead and get this um, uh, in one of, the, one of the deals that you have. So Feel free to mimic this as you would like, um, um, and hopefully it uh, benefits some of the active investors on the call today. Yeah, no, I, Brian, I think that was awesome, and where I was going with that is you hit the nail on the head. You, you do not want to disclose who the resident is, and you that was the point I was going to make as you were pulling that up. You got to be very careful with that, so um, great job on that. I thought that was excellent. Kudos, uh, good stuff there. Um, another question that came in here, while cap rates for parks have generally compressed, again, over the last few years, so too have the borrowing rates, thereby keeping the spread between the two relatively stable for a while. When borrowing rates do eventually rise, given the increasing institutional interest in the space and the associated cap rate pressure from the institutional buyers, do you think that that historical spread will compress? Um, historically, the margins have kind of exceeded a lot of the other uh, asset classes, um, you, know, you know, be they multifamily, be they uh, 
net lease, be it whatever the case may be, we've had really solid spreads in the space. Are those going to compress over time? Uh, would love to hear Eric's thoughts on that uh, in terms of, you know, kind of the lending piece specifically. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, you know, we're at, we're at historically low interest rates still. You had mentioned uh, earlier in the call that we saw negative interest rates. Uh, that's got to be a first. <laughs> um, at what time do we see rates go up? Uh, everyone would love to know the answer to that. Do I think it's a, uh, it, it's a reason cap rates continue to compress? Of course. Um, but what, what we do see is a limited amount of product out there. There's very little new development going on. The institutions and it every every group is trying to buy more and more as quickly as they can. Um, so is do I think you know so long as these communities continue to perform um, well, do cap rates continue to compress? Yes, um, you know the cost of capital if that goes up significantly, then there's you know one of two things happen: prices go up, or you got to bring more equity in the deal. Um, I mean, prices go down, sorry, um, prices. <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, overall, I think the trend is going to, as Enon had pointed, you know, prices are going to continue to go up in the market, uh, for this asset type uh, over the long run, we're going to continue to see price appreciation, cap rate compression with, uh, you know, with very uh, little change in the capital markets, because even if the 10 year treasury starts to go up, which is what a lot of the debt's based off of, uh, spreads as we see get compressed. Um, so, so the margins the lenders are making actually go down for higher quality assets. So, um, you know, long-term, I think this is still a safe play and cap rates are still gonna continue to compress to the point where they're gonna be competing with multi, I mean, they already are competing with multifamily, but. Uh, yeah. I love that, and I would say rightfully so. Um, why would we not? We have historically had a, a, a boon in terms of the interest rate uh, margin, um, and I don't know uh, why that's the case, right? Meaning I don't believe that should have historically been the case. The only reason that I feel we've been able to keep that, um, uh, that, that uh, additional, uh, uh, spread there is due to the fact that historically this has not been viewed as a as an institutional asset class. Um, there's only a couple of REITs out there. There aren't a lot of folks that that follow this uh, and actually report nationwide statistics, etc. And it hasn't, you know, some of that institutional capital had been kept away over the last few decades for that reason. But that's changed in the last five years. Some of the biggest players in the world have come into the space: Apollo Group, Carlyle Group, you know, Blackstone. Uh, uh, a million different folks have come into the space with literally billion dollar uh, funds trying to roll up as many of these respective assets as possible. And that's not going away. Um, the data is now compiled. It's out there and the merits of the asset class uh, are known. The cat is out of the bag. Um, so I do believe that we over time uh, will see uh, a little bit less of a margin between what we have historically in terms of kind of maybe the margin we would see over something like multifamily. But on the flip side, what I would convey is that does not change the fact that the same store NOI growth in this niche outpaces any other niche in the, in the, in the marketplace. So um, the merits of the asset class aren't just based on buying with a solid spread today. It's based on what this asset class is going to do over the long term. And when you take into account the fact that, you know, the macroeconomics convey and the demographics convey that they're not making uh, 
too terribly many of these on an annual basis. And the demand for the product is massive and continuing to increase 10 years down the road, 30 years down the road, 40 years down the road. That same store NOI growth is really what's going to create the, the massive margin that makes it extremely appealing. Um, in addition to that, there are so many operational inefficiencies from operator to operator that you can find these really solid, what I would say, light value add deals. There's certainly a heck of a lot of heavy value add deals um, that can create substantive sweat equity shortly after acquisition, the short to medium term after acquisition. Um, and those are going to continue to, 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 to uh, remain uh, over the next few years uh, because just su such a high percentage of these deals are owned by mom and pop operators. Um, so I, I share the sentiment that you're, you seem to be conveying there that the, those spreads are going to decrease over time. I agree with that, but I still think one, there's going to be opportunities because there's poor operators in the space in different areas, mom and pop tired folks. And then secondarily, over the long term, the same store NOI growth exceeds any other niche that you're going to find. So um, still love the asset class um, and just appreciate the, the long term merit to the space. Um, anything to add guys, Kev, anything there? No, no, I don't. I don't think so. And uh, just, I want to be respectful of the time as well for everyone that's watching and uh, that are on the panel as well. But now, I, th I think you hit it, Brian. Yeah, very, very much appreciated. I share the sentiment. We've hit that one-hour mark. Um, and you know, similarly, want to be mindful of everybody's time. Uh, would love to say first thank you to Enan and Eric for yeah. joining us on the call today. Your guys' insight—it's very, very much appreciated. Um, and to everybody that's out there listening, guys, we're going to continue this series on an ongoing basis. Uh, there's been so much positive feedback that it, it certainly merits jumping on a, a Q&A call with everybody um, every other week until the pandemic subsides. And and even still, in time, once the pandemic kind of subsides it is very, very likely that we'll go ahead and, and maybe monitor this and kick it to a, uh, um, a monthly slate where we give kind of a state of the, a state of the industry on an ongoing monthly basis. But uh, we're gonna be doing this on a, uh, every other week in the, in the short term here. Uh, so with that, we'll, we'll get out of here, guys. Uh, so until next time, you guys be great, okay? Thanks. Thank you. Take care. Thank Thanks, guys. Yep. Thanks. Bye. Congratulations for taking the necessary steps to achieving massive success through the highly lucrative niche of mobile home park investing. Be sure to visit our website, mobilehomeparkacademy.com, to download your free digital ebook version of the 21 biggest mistakes investors make when buying their first mobile home park and how you can avoid them. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe to our free monthly mobile home park investing newsletter, which is jammed full of valuable tips, tricks, and strategies to help you accelerate your path to success as a mobile home park investor. More information about this podcast and its hosts can be found by visiting mobilehomeparkacademy.com.